Well, thank you very much, everyone, for your time today coming along to this ZoneFox webinar, uh, which will focus on the challenges faced by the financial services sector. Uh, in particular, we're going to discuss incident response, how to detect a breach, best practice, and other related matters. And I'm sure we'll go off piste a little bit uh, in order to explore some of these topics. Uh, and joining me today uh, are Stu Hurst and Chris Sutherland. Uh, they are both highly experienced, seasoned, knowledgeable, handsome, intelligent information security professionals. Um, uh, so quick bio of uh, our, our, um, our guest today. So Chris Sutherland, he's uh, got over 20 years of experience in the industry. He's been a CISO uh, across a number of different markets from uh, working within the government sector through to the banking sector financial services. He's a winner of the 2017 Sons Difference Makers and DEFCON's infamous Capture the Flag contest. Uh, he's been an invited speaker and interviewee with The Economist magazine, Financial Times, NIST, and the US Secret Service, as well as many others. Uh, also with me uh, is Stu Hurst. Uh, Stu is a self-described security book. He also has a very long career in the information security sector, uh, working across many different organizations from the train line, CISO NC NCP, and security manager at the mighty Skyscanner. Uh, he currently works at Capital One, but I believe he is uh, moving to a new and uh, exciting role at Photobox. And he's a local force of nature, uh, set up the, setting up the constantly oversubscribed Security Scotland meetup. So thank you, Chris. Thank you, Stu, for joining me today. Thank you, Jamie. Um, so um, you both had varied careers in a number of organizations. It'd be good to hear uh, your thoughts and opinions on where the differences or similarities lie in terms of the challenges faced within uh, financial services. Uh, the, the differences, I guess, would be the, uh, the most interesting part for, for a lot of our listeners today. But Chris, would you like to kick that one off? Sure. Um, thanks, Jamie. In, in my mind, the, one of the biggest differences with, with the FS space over others is simply the regulatory environment. Uh, the, 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 the oversight that's provided by uh, various uh, regulatory agencies is, is very, very robust and incredibly prescriptive in some areas. Uh, as an example, for the bank I was working at in the U.S., I had 17 regulatory agencies at a state, federal, local level that all had jurisdiction. So uh, probably half of my job was dealing with the regulators. And in fact, for one of the years there, we didn't have a business day go past in 12 months where I didn't have two regulatory exams and one internal audit going on. So that takes up a lot of time and energy and money. But that said, the easiest way to distill what the, all the regulators are ultimately looking for and the various regulations are simply, do you understand your risks and are you managing them, them accordingly? So that's, I think, really the big difference and really what they're looking for in a nutshell. Stu, what's your, what's your view on that matter? Is he on mute? Yep, Stu, I think he might be on mute. There you go. You've unmuted yep. yourself. Sorry, guys. Awful, no. awful app here. Um, yeah. Uh, appreciate you uh, mentioning me as a handsome security guy. It's probably the first time I've heard that. <laughs> but I'll take any any compliments I can get. Um, I, I'd agree with Chris. The um, so I, I had uh, 12 years at RBS, but in the mainframe world um, for my sins. Um, so not really in the security side of things. But certainly well, since I've been at Capital One, regulations are obviously a huge part. It's a, a major bank in the US and a, a credit card company in the UK. So. Uh, as Chris mentioned, regulation is, is key. Um, I think what I found interesting in this current role is just how the tech journey that um, that particular company are on is actually helping regulators. So regulators are actually trying to keep up to speed with the, the pace of change at, at some of these, these organizations. Um, I think something that would be good to come on to during this chat is really the whole kind of threat actor side of things. So having come from an internet company into more... Uh, financial world and going back into the internet world, there are subtle differences there, um, or well, major differences in terms of the threat actors to those companies um, when it comes to kind of nation states versus, um, you know, ethical hackers, whatever it might be. Um, so that, I think there's subtleties there that, that are worth exploring. Yeah, so so something around the the, the threat modelling aspect, which is uh, an interesting recent topic that I've, I've suddenly got a lot more into. Um, especially when on Twitter the other day, I, I saw someone had 
um, seen their cat steal their Yubi key, which was a, a threat actor they hadn't previously expected. So, uh, you know, it can come from all, all different angles. Um, so, Chris, it, it's interesting what you highlighted there around the, the I, I guess, the fundamentals, which is security fundamentals, what you risks, how you're measuring them, all that kind of good stuff. Do you think there was a contradiction there in terms of, you know, the audit, the exams piece, and that, that constant uh, compliance reporting, do you, do you think that fit in well with that uh, idea or was it a checkbox exercise that didn't really lead to much in the way of efficacy? So that's ultimately the challenge with a compliance-based approach is that it's definitely a tick box. But if, if you're looking for risk-based decision-making, which is ultimately, I mean, if you look at banks, uh, what operational risk is what they do for a living when it's all said and done. and. Uh, and, and in our world, loss events are inevitable, just like in credit risk. So we want to make sure any, any loss events we're having aren't catastrophic like they were 10 years ago on, on the credit side, as you know, a metaphor in, in the cyber side. But uh, ultimately, I, I think with the regulators, one of the things, that, and Stu alluded to it, was one of the big challenges has ultimately been the education of the regulators. I spent a lot of time with, uh, in my office with our whiteboards, kind of drawing out concepts and helping them understand what we were doing and why we were doing it to make sure that they are actually helping ask the right questions. So in many ways, we spent a lot of time trying to educate them and guide them so that um, they, they weren't a hindrance. Um, in the financial services, there's what's known as three lines of defense. It's a, it's a common model. You know, you've got uh, operations, governance, and audit. Mm. Um, our regulators consider themselves to be the fourth line of defense. And uh, that's something they kind of self-promoted. And with that in mind, so we, we wanted to definitely steer them and have that discussion mm. going on. Audit, of course, was the biggest challenge because they, they had their set of checklists. But that said, if you understood what your risks were, like if you knew what your assets were, if you knew the threat actors, to Stu's point, and their motivations, and then you knew how they operationalized their attacks, and you had the appropriate capabilities on the back end, and you could then you know have appropriate metrics for each of those controls, then you could actually have a really good discussion with your regulators and your auditors like, well, we're not doing X because X isn't, doesn't actually add any value. It's just a theoretical attack vector. There isn't anything that's rationally operationalized or there's lots of different ways of looking stuff. But when it's all said and done, it, to have that nice view of how attacks were operationalized, tying it back to, to the threat actors and uh, to, to the actual information assets that they're interested in, that, that's an approach that's, that we found to be very successful. Mm. It's really knowing what you have, who wants it, why do they want it, how they want to get it, and then build your program based on that. And, and did you see that reverse uh, of, of knowledge being transferred back into regular and helping affect others, or, or, or was, it, was it simply a set of standards that, was, that were fairly generic and you had to interpret? I'm not sure I'm quite following which. How effective was your education piece to the to the regulator? Well, I, I don't I can't speak to how effective it was for them, but certainly it was helpful for me. Any uh, uh, formal letters that we got uh, helped actually validate our strategic plan and got funding that would have been discretionary and made it mandatory right. because the regulators quote suggested it unquote, or they sent us the formal letter requiring it. So basically, we we're trying to use their powers for good. And uh, that was very helpful. Nice. So, so, Stu, I mean, Capital One, really interesting company in terms of the, the, the outlook that you guys have and the, the, um, the, 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 the model that you're developing, especially around you know, the, the, the creation of apps in-house and um, the development of uh, in-house proprietary technology. How, how has that affected uh, the view of the regulator? How are you uh, helping push the agenda there? Yeah, I think similar to what Chris is saying, the educational piece of you know, compliance and regulation moves at a certain speed, but certain financial organizations are certainly moving far faster than that, especially in the journey to, to the cloud. Um, I was going to make a point just before there around the fact that some of these, these huge financial organizations have large amounts of uh, legacy infrastructure and they're, they're trying to move away from some of this kit that's been around for years and um, extremely complex environments as they move from, from the old ways of doing things into, into the new ways. And... Um, whether regulation is kind of keeping up with the pace of some of that, I'm not, I'm not entirely sure. Um, so it's very much a two-way thing of, you know, are there learnings from the capital ones of this world where the regulators can take that and use it uh, to benchmark against other organizations? Um, Cap one certainly on the US side is, is very uh, bought into the whole open source idea. So there's, there's various things publicly available. Um, it's really a tech company 
providing banking services rather than the other way around, um, which is great. And I think those kind of environments will fundamentally help other financial organisations um, in their in their journey. In, interesting. And and are you you seeing that push for so open banking is certainly uh, one of the things that that's hit recently. Uh, you know, the idea of of data sharing very much in the news right now is is that having a huge impact on what you guys are doing at the moment? Uh, yeah, absolutely, as it will be for any financial organisation. The, the brave new world of, of sharing data between organisations beyond what you've currently been doing. So, again, you know, the companies have got to make sure that they're they're doing the necessary. Um, I'm, I'm not an old school compliance guy, as many people who know me uh, know. So, I, I do find some of the tick box exercises a little bit um, frustrating because sometimes it's not always the right thing to do for your particular organisation. And again, that just ties back to the education piece of are we doing things in a different way? but actually perhaps even better and, and can the regulators learn from that and, and, and tweak their processes or their, um, their, their ways of working to help other, uh, other businesses. Makes sense. Um, so so the, the one thing we haven't mentioned yet, and, and it is the elephant in the room, is the, the, the four-letter word, uh, well, it's an acronym, really, GDPR, and, and the, the effect that's having across all business, businesses in the sector. Are there any specific things that you, you feel as if uh, you, you're better prepared for, for that particular regulation, or are you in the same place as uh, quite a lot of the other markets in terms of that uh, amount of effort that's had to go into um, preparing for it? I think my perception of GDPR from a financial services organization is they were very uh, bought into that from an extremely early stage. I think probably from what I know of other smaller organizations in other industries, they, they, aren't, uh, they weren't as, as new uh, to that journey and perhaps has been a, a bit of a last minute panic <laughs> to, to do something about it. Um, yeah, I think the banks are well set up to, uh, to deal with that is my, my kind of perception. Yeah, I would have to agree. Certainly in the U.S. side, uh, on the information security side of GDPR, there's there's been legislation since the late 90s called the Gramm-Leach-Bliley Act that basically required banks to put appropriate controls in place to protect their customer information. So that part's already kind of been there. It's the uh, that whole uh, consent piece that uh, I think is a real issue with GDPR that people are really having the heartache over. Um, and that's, uh, that's, of course, one of the tricky ones with, with the financial industry because everybody loves to sell information. And, of course, uh, out with Europe, uh, that's a very legitimate business model. Mm. So that's, that's going to be causing some pain, but that might be out of scope for a discussion. So I'll, uh... Yeah, I think some of the data that, that's come into GDPR beyond what we used to naturally um, protect very heavily. So IP address is a good example. And that, that Skyscanner, we had, we had some real complex um, problems to solve around, you know, how do you, if somebody asks to be removed as a customer of, of that service and it's attached to IP addresses used over a period of time that could be on you know, all sorts of places across your infrastructure, how do you how do you build a mechanism to remove that if they've asked for it? Uh, very difficult to do. I don't, I don't know the answer to it, but it, it's, it's added to complexity beyond kind of the, the historic data protection act. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Interestingly enough, yeah, you, you've got the removal information, but you've also got uh, record level things like record level encryption and uh, peering back into your backups <laughs> to delete to data as well, which is a fascinating set of problems. And I suspect that uh, the GDPR journey will be precisely that. It will have a very long tail for, for many years to come around that. Um, so we've we've discussed a little bit in terms of context of financial services uh, regulatory environment, which is clearly um, uh, tightening up. There's been a lot of issues come come down the line for the, the sector in, in general. But it'd be good to to start talking about some of the I guess specifics of the the, the topic today uh, around uh, incident response. And and I guess it'd probably be a good idea to <laughs> start from the very beginning. So preparation is clearly key for it. And and Stu, you are you mentioned threat model. Chris, you've, you've mentioned that risk-based approach. Could you both give a bit of an insight onto your, your yeah, uh, so Stu, if you could give a bit of an insight into where you, where you where your headspace is, uh, especially around threat modeling. Yeah, threat modeling, it's a fairly new concept in, in the way that businesses are potentially using it. I, th I think it's a funky term for you know, trying to find risk when you're building and supporting applications. Uh, it's something that, that Capital One would certainly investing a lot of time and money in. Um, it, it helps educate 
huge uh, other parts of the business in how they, they build things and how they develop architectures and infrastructures. Um, I think when it comes to incident response, it, it will help you potentially see where there are pain points and where things can happen that you perhaps didn't, um, didn't appreciate when you, when you uh, support um, these kind of things. One of, some of the main work that we've been doing of late has been more around uh, sort of incident playbooks and runbooks so that you've at least documented many of the things that you know can or do go wrong and you define how you deal with those things, what support teams need to be involved. It's all about pace and speed of, of, uh, of response uh, and having an understanding of where to go to find certain bits of information. So that, that, that's been the kind of main um, pieces of work that I've been doing, not just at Capital One, but, but, but Skyscanner as well. Um, we do lots of tabletop exercises and, and incident simulations. Um, we've just, one, uh, just done one recently where we took basically something we found via our red team um, and used that as the uh, the incident to uh, to use as a simulation, which was great because it was something that we actually sort of found in the wild, and then used that as the, the catalyst to go and test our, our capabilities. Yep. Um, so, when, with regards to tabletop exercises, exercises, I couldn't agree more with Stu that these things are critical to uh, making sure your program is effective. That said, there's really two levels of uh, tabletops, and ultimately, kind of two levels to your incident response. Uh, programs and it's really you've got your operational side and then you've got the organizational side. Uh, most organizations that I've seen in terms of putting together their incident response plan focus on the operations, you know, doing the investigations, worrying about your chain of custody, your chain of evidence, uh, how, how are you doing your forensics, all, all, all of that kind of fun stuff. But there's uh, a lot of vagarities ultimately in who's like with the real question is who is in charge? Should it be the chief information security officer? Um, I argue that at my old bank, that's uh, absolutely the CISO should not be the person in charge of an incident of an incident. Say, so for example, if we had an incident on our trading floor in our cap capital markets group, where we would have seen, you know, 150 million dollars potentially be exfiltrated through bogus trades that day, uh, what do I have the authority to shut down the trading floor? Absolutely, I do. Would I have my job the next day? Absolutely not. And uh, the reason, of course, is we don't. I don't know what the knock-on effects of doing that would be to the business in terms of how many additional hundreds, if not billions, of dollars that could cost us. So we put together a, an incident response framework based on the U.S.'s National Incident Management System, which is a generic crisis management framework that the government put together. It was actually put together by California for, uh, for firefighters to deal with uh, forestry fires because they're large, complicated events. And that's since been uh, transformed into a generic crisis management framework. Over here in the U.K., we've got uh, a, a similar crisis management framework that has gold, silver, and bronze levels. And it's, it's, it's a very interesting thing. But... The important thing is have a framework that you're, you're doing as an organization, identify the roles, who's in charge, who does your communications, who interfaces with your external third parties, such as law enforcement, like who's doing your media. And um, with all of these things, have, as Stu was saying, you know, detailed playbooks, but also have pre-approved communications, because today's world, what's going to kill you, all we have to do is look at talk talk. Um, in terms of how to mismanage the communications of a breach and contrast that with the one we had a year ago with Tesco Bank. It hit on a, Thursday, or sorry, on a Saturday, it disappeared off the news cycle on a Tuesday because they were managing their communications effectively and there wasn't really a story. There's like, hey, we've had a breach, we're doing this, this is what we're doing. They kept a good pace of information. When they didn't know something, they didn't opine, they just said we're researching it. Uh, so the communications piece is really one of the foundational bits that we don't really talk about as much, but if you don't have a robust communications plan for breach response, you're gonna, it's just gonna be a real mess. And not only that, sorry, stepping back, you gotta know who's in charge, what's your chain of command, um, just because, and, and anytime there's as an event, we had a number of events, fortunately none of them were, quote, reportable, unquote, when I was back at the bank, but half the time, you, you spend half the time dealing with other execs calling you up, hey, what's going on? And so it's distracting you from, from that. So if you have a standardized playbook, you can actually, you know, have your communications pace, have all of that going on. And I'm starting to talk in circles, so I'll stop. But ultimately, it's not just the operations, but the crisis management piece for the organization is critical. Yeah, I agree. And I think that's that's actually very new for a lot of organizations. The, the idea of having a, a really well-defined process of not just how you deal with the incident, but... Uh, how you escalate it to the right people, especially if it's kind of third-party uh, 
suppliers where potentially you need to have them on a call very quickly. Uh, the PR side of things, as you say, if something terrible does happen and you need to get something out, you need to get that PR has to be right because that can have a bad impact reputationally as well. Um, and that, that's that's all part of a modern uh, incident response, I think, these days. I did want to touch on the fact that you know it's all very well having incident playbooks and the right processes and the, the right people, but I think from an operational point of view, you need to understand what's happening at any point in time. So, you know, we could go into lots of conversations around logging, dashboards, seam, ha having all that data at your fingertips as, as a cyber team to be able to understand what's happening across your business at any point in time. And again, um, that that's a level of maturity that comes far further down the line for some organizations. Yeah, uh, in, interesting set of points there. So it would actually uh, be pretty pretty fun to, to dive into that a little bit in terms of, so we, we've spoken fairly high level, so frameworks, uh, getting it sorted out with the, within the organization. What, what are you finding that's useful right now, Stu, in terms of that situational awareness to, to be able to uh, uh, both operate uh, uh, when an incident happens, but also detect breaches? Yeah, again, it depends on the kind of the infrastructure that, that you have as a, as a business. And if you, especially in the banking sector, which, which have hugely complex setups, um, I, th I think logging is key. Uh, you want to be logging as much as you can, but that data is only valuable if you can actually get things out of it at any point in time. So um, using Seam solutions that will help you either build dashboards, uh, generate alerts for certain types of things that you're looking for. Um, so, so it's twofold, really, is having the logging, having the data in, one place to to do something with it, uh, and then really building alert capability based on things that you uh, think are dangerous. Um, you, know, you don't know what you don't know, so. Yeah, and once you you built those alert capability, I mean, I'm always fascinated by the you know the the big data data lake piece, which is collect everything and then you know carve through your petabyte of data with with a Python script later on. Is is there a uh, do you go through a triage process in order to understand what's important? Uh, do you keep stuff in the background to later revise and review it? What, what's your process around that? I think it depends on the application. So there's some applications where you might only want to take the logging from the alerts that are being generated by that application rather than just taking all the raw logs and just putting them into one place, which generates you know, petabytes of data that you may not do anything with. So it, it really depends on, on the app. So some apps you want to take all of the logs coming out of there and then digest it in some other uh, seam solution, perhaps. So um, I, I think it's a bit of both. Makes sense. And, and another approach that, that we've done is uh, we basically did event triggering where we would have a kind of a baseline level of, uh, of alerts being digested. But depending on the certain triggers, then we would turn on more monitoring to get more comprehensive views and stuff. Just uh, because, like, for example, if you look back at our own bank, we had hundreds of thousands of endpoints, and we're a global location, and uh, the amount of data to parse was crazy. So we, we had to kind of have a, a minimum. So we set up a, a couple of key use cases, mm. which I think is where you got to start with all of this. Start with don't, just don't turn everything on. Start use case by UK, use case, you know, tweak that, get that working, and then expand. But, um, yeah, a, a tiered approach is, is a good way if you've got, the potential for having a whole lot of data and you don't want to get get overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. Yeah, I and mean, that ties into the whole kind of alert fatigue thing, which which I'm sure every business struggles from to, for, to a certain degree. And uh, things get ignored if there's just too much noise coming from applications. So it's really trying to hone down what's important to, to you at any point in time and what you're looking for. Uh, and I think protecting the things that that really matter, the whole crown jewels piece around it. What, what's the thing that if you lost would, would cause you the, the worst damage um, and really make that the, the part of your business that you really go after from an alerting point of view? That said, there's, there's kind of one of the unspoken pieces is that all of these capabilities are built on the assumption that people have robust and mature asset inventories inside the organization. Yeah. Um, I have never met a company that truly, truly does. So, like Stu, to your point about identifying your crown jewels and starting there. So, for for the for organizations that don't have the luxury of having regulators to come along and mandate, you will put, put, develop a robust uh, book of records, everything from your IPs to you know the to the information assets on the applications, all the layers in between with the corresponding owners, risk levels, et cetera, et cetera. If you don't have that quote privilege, unquote. Um, often it doesn't get done, and then you know you so you're buying all these really sexy toys, and they're not going to be anywhere near as effective because you just don't know what you have and where it is. Yeah, and I think the the the, the agility of the organisation and the pace at which they move 
makes that very difficult anyway. So Skyscanner was a good example of a company where I wouldn't even have been able to get my head around at any point in time what, what was being used because it just changed so much and that environment changed so much that as soon as you created an asset uh, inventory, it'd be pretty much out of date. Um, so that, that makes it really difficult. Yeah, the, the issue of where's my stuff and, and did I lose a bunch of cat gifts or the customer databases <laughs> and that, that, that we see on a day-to-day -day basis. <coughs> um, so, so have you guys ever seen that done well anywhere in terms of uh, a, a true understanding of data, its, uh, its location in the organization, uh, a truly good asset register, or is that still a massive gap that we have? So at, at, at our bank, thanks to the regulators, I, I think we, we were doing it well enough. Mm. Uh, this is one of those situations where, unlike Skyscanner, which is you know very nimble, agile organization we had, this is where bureaucracy actually worked in our favor just because it was such a documented, painful process to deploy new capabilities and systems and get them connected, whether they be internal mm. or cloud, third party, whatever buzzword you want to look at. We had at least a means of capturing that information, and this also gave us some opportunities to do some process improvement where we're able to streamline some things and actually deploy things a little quicker, better, faster, which uh, actually scored us a lot of points with, with the business. So we were actually deploying some new, uh, quote, you know, security-related capabilities, but mm. we're actually making things less painful for them. Mm. Uh, and that's also one of my personal rants. If, if you can actually you know, deploy safe, uh, security capability and improve the business doing it, that, that's a huge win and that business case almost writes itself. But um, yeah, so we were doing it. We had four, four different books of records. We had a, an application one, we had a systems one, we had a configurations one, and we had an IP address one, which was four seems a lot, but they were all connected to each other with, you know, some fun XML and whatnot. But it was a big step forward from the 33 incomplete and overlapping you know, books of records that we had running on at any given point in time. But it was also a significant amount of effort. It cost us a lot of money to do this. We had, we literally had people walking through offices and the data center with a notebook, writing down what was where, logging on the consoles, looking at VMs, and just, it was very time, uh, uh, yeah, very timely, uh, sorry, time consuming. That's the word I'm looking for, effort. And uh, yeah, it, it, it paid off. And, and that we were able to improve our processes on the back end, but uh, we would have never done it had the regulators not stepped up and done it. So for organizations that don't have it, uh, there's it, it's t that's a tough business case to write unless in the, you're looking at business process improvement yeah. as one of your main uh, you know, angles. Yeah, with the side benefit of, of there being that yeah. knowledge here. Yeah. And, yeah, and I guess I was sorry, Stu. Sorry, Jamie. I was just going to say I was told a story this week um, about a colleague of mine had worked for another organization where to even get a new application into uh, into their environment um, had to go to an advisory board that only met once a quarter. So naturally, it would take you anything from six months upwards normally to get full approval and get that, that application in. So when you've got environments like that, it's much easier to be able to document that and, and have a, a view of everything that's, that's within your within your environment. I think when you're in the far more agile businesses who just do things, then that, that's far more difficult and, and you, you tend to not hear about certain things at certain times. Yeah, yeah, uh, absolutely. And uh, yeah, it's, it's when the process absolutely saves us. And I guess that, that's part of the, the interesting thing we have nowadays. So here in Edinburgh, we've got a great fintech sector, very agile organizations using a lot of different cloud-based systems and so on and so forth. Do you think there's a technology play there that, that can help save us, or are we just going to get into the same state but with different architectures and different systems? I think the, I did make some notes earlier on around the whole fintech uh, side of things. So there's some really, really interesting fintech companies, um, uh, new online banks coming out who are cloud first, um, you know, as agile as those kind of businesses can be, but in mind they'll, they'll also be regulated. But I know of one certainly, and, I, and I'm a customer of them, um, that they don't yet have a, a security team. I mean, they have people doing security for, for obvious reasons, but they're, they're not big enough to really have built their, their security team yet. So that said, they, they could be doing things reasonably well, but they're on that, that journey. So I wonder how the bigger organizations can learn from the agility of some of the, the smaller fintechs coming through. And, and I guess vice versa as well, how, how the smaller guys can, can learn from what the bigger guys are doing as well. I think, so uh, you know, running a startup is an, it's an incredibly invigorating uh, place to be, but you generally do cut code and get things done before you think about that wider aspect. Uh, yeah. And it's, 
it's really really challenging to to make sure you build it in. So you know if you look at secure you know uh, um, secure by design, you want to do it at at the very front. But if you if you need to ship code every two weeks, then is it going to happen? That's where, of course, your automation can come in. Um, it, you know, for example, if you're deploying new uh, VMs and stuff, if you have an automated way of doing that, and that's, that's ultimately it's the reporting piece. Uh, you can still be agile, but you need to have that level of reporting that's there because that's ultimately what your CISO is looking for because that's ultimately what the chief execs and the regulators are looking for is, is that reporting ability to say, okay, we understand what's going on, we have control of our environment, and we're doing the right things for the right reasons. So we can still have that agile piece, but you know, of course, you know, reporting is kind of like documentation to a techie. It's like it's something it's somebody else's problem. Um, like when I started writing code, my documentation was was painful. Mm. And uh, if you know about my own personal history with my first startup being the Cisco Pixbox, um, and all the fun problems they've had, it's mm. probably because a my coding is not very good and my documentation is much much worse. So. Um, yeah, this, this is where you just need to consider that piece and start just tracking and reporting stuff. You don't necessarily have to have an owner's, owner's process, but make sure it gets documented somehow. Uh, please tell me your, your variable names are highly obtuse and hard to guess. <laughs> anyway, let's not get into that. Um, so, so it, that's, that's an interesting one. That, that journey around reporting KPIs and tracking the things that matter, how do you start on that journey? What, what would your advice be? Because I know, you, certainly from my experience of, of working with certain organizations, you, you, you ask people to track things. And, and how do you know you're doing the right thing? How do you know you're not um, tracking things instead of doing your day, day job? How do you understand that right blend mix and, and identify the, the right stuff effectively? Yeah, I think it's very difficult, Jamie, KPIs and security in general, because it's a, it's a part of our businesses where, again, I keep using the phrase, but you don't know what you don't know. So you can take metrics from various applications to understand the health of those applications um, or the speed of, of processing or, or whatnot. But sometimes to be able to reduce KPIs for certain attack vectors or whatever it might be, it can be very difficult. Um, how do you know at any point in time who externally is trying something on your on your site? I mean, you may be able to have visibility of certain types of things, but if it, if it if it goes under the radar, um, your KPIs aren't necessarily the mechanism to improve those things. Um, so I think KPIs across the business in in various other ways are extremely useful, uh, increasing kind of click through on your site or, or um, speed of applications, whatever it might be. Um, I think in security it's very difficult. I can't really say that it's a um, problem that I've solved particularly yet. So what, what we've done in, in our previous worlds is we've basically taken kind of an information centric view to things and that's you know Stu what you mentioned earlier about the crown jewels is work with you know your various lines of business to help understand what kind of information they have as a company whether it be so if we were to look at you know universities and colleges they're pretty straightforward here in Scotland. Um, and we did this exercise uh, with, with most of them in that we, we try to look at what kind of information they have at a high level. Every, every institution has student records. So it's kind of, they've got HR data, they've got finance data, they've got intellectual property, they've got you know, core high level kinds of information. So if you can work with the business owners to rationalize the, their information in some very high level categories, families, whatever word you want to use. I'd use the word blob because nobody ever uses the word blob. Um, and uh, if you say information asset, information category, most people already have a predefined notion coming to the table. So, um, but yeah, what, however you want to define it, rationalize your information at a very high level and then walk the business through some, you know, basically information related adverse events, whether they be disruption, destruction, disclosure, or modification which is you know, similar to the CIA triad that we're all familiar with the information security world, but availability, uh, kind of, we split up availability into two different areas because it's really two different kinds of impact of the business, whether it's uh, disruption and disruption. So if your information's gone for an hour versus it's gone for good, has a very different business outcome. So you walk with them, work with the business owners to find out what's their outcome to their business and help them with once you've identified the kind of information and go through these act, uh, activities, what you're ultimately doing is you're determining the inherent risk 
of certain kinds of information to your organization. And once you've got that, you can then start looking at your threat actors and all of that, because who's interested? So if you go back to banking, you've got your merger and acquisition strategies, you've got your trading data, your trading algorithms, customer information, the accounts themselves, uh, ATM machines. There's lots of different kind of sub little categories that you can pretty much rationalize. And once you understand then what information you have, why it's important, the KPIs and KRIs almost write themselves. Mm -hmm. And the keyword being, of course, almost, but you can still get like a 60 to 80 percent, you know, just kind of an intuitive run because you now know your inherent risk. Look at, you know, how attacks are operationalized, map those controls to that kind of information. And if you start now getting some dashboards that mean something to the business side, you can say, hey, here's the our efficacy of protecting our customer information based on the threats we know of today. And here are a couple key bullet points you need to be aware of. And so really, if, this is where the business piece comes in. And really, this is just a business impact assessment. That's actually a business impact assessment. I've seen a lot of business impact assessments where they actually don't quantify the business impact. Mm -hmm. um, another way of also doing this is mapping those outcomes to every organization, or at least most mature organizations have an operational risk impact for categories. They're mm -hmm. typically a one to five or a one to six. And work with them to map what this, out what this outcome is. If the information's gone, you know, say denial of service attack. You know, if it's gone for one day, two days, five days, what's the impact of the business? What's that going to cost us? And yeah, some, sometimes you're kind of making up the numbers as you go, but they're at least semi-informed, and it's a great starting point. So this is this is all the business side of information security that I think is an industry we're starting to mature a lot more in these things by by having that conversation. And plus, also when you do this, and then you draw a line in the sand with the business saying, "Hey guys, the way you're doing something, that's just." that's really, really bad. You know, you've got that political capital and that trust where you've, you know, you've shown that you're trying to understand them and their business because ultimately as information security, we're overhead, you know, unless you're part of a company that's selling those services. We're, we're not part of the revenue generating part of the business. So our job ultimately is to help our businesses be better, faster, and stronger. Mm -hmm. So this is a good way to help that, have that conversation, get the KRIs, KPIs, and you know, the operational controls mapped the right way with the buy-in from the business. But this is something I could preach on for hours, so I'll stop now because I'm sure Stu has comments. <laughs> I think the uh, I find the AWS world that I've been in the last few years very interesting because that is very good from a from a KPI point of view. So you can use lots of different tools either within AWS or open source or, or, or product where at any point in time you can have a really good overview of what your AWS infrastructure looks like. So you know it'll give you percentages of unencrypted SV buckets or uh, you know 101 other other things. So that that can be used as a very good mechanism to drive improvements uh, in that. So that, that, that's been a real key part of what I've been doing over the last few years to, to visualize that and give a, a view of, of how comfortable you think you are at any point in time. Yeah, make, makes sense. And, and then translating that for, as Chris says, into, into the business language that we all need to start using a lot more. Um, so we've covered, uh, covered off on some of the, the points around identification, um, how we understand what's happening within our environment. Um, It'd be good to, to, to get your thoughts and your ideas around really on the, the recovery. So after the incident, recovering from and learning lessons from an incident within within the organization. Because, uh, um, you know, often, so I'm, I'm a pretty techie guy. I'm really interested in the technical part of it. And we go, okay, we've done all the techie stuff, all the really interesting analysis. Let's go down the pub. But there, there's some really, really interesting things that we can get off the back of that. Stu, I'd like to hear your, your thoughts on, on how you go about recovering from an incident and, and, and institutionalizing or understanding lessons learned. Yeah, and I, I use Skyscanner as the example of a company that did this extremely well. They introduced a, uh, a post-mortem um, weekly meeting uh, for, for the whole of engineering, uh, actually, so, so upwards of 400 people in that business at the time, where uh, any production impacting incident, um, including security, because we, we, we embedded that into, into that as well, um, was brought to that forum um, where the squad dealing with the fix, and by that point it had already generally been fixed, um, would uh, speak to, to the rest of engineering around how that happened, how they discovered the problem in the first place, the impact it had, um, lessons learned from that, and then any kind of fixes they'd put in place or any um, mechanisms they'd use to, to ensure that didn't happen again. Now, 
thankfully I had a, a completely no blame culture. I know I know a lot of organisations say that they have a no blame culture. It often isn't the case. Uh, thankfully that place um, did have that, which was great. Which meant people could be extremely open. Um, were not made to feel uncomfortable because something bad had, had happened. It was really a, a great forum to teach people about how something came about um, and and spread that learning across a, albeit a fairly small business in terms of numbers, um, pretty quickly. Now, um, Cap One do a similar thing, they, um, perhaps a little bit more more formal and for, and for more major incidents. Um, but I think the idea is the same, where you just try and share across your business to, to the right people what's happened. Um, we, in the organizations I've been in over the last few years, we use JIRA quite heavily, so that, that's a, a fairly good tool for, uh, you know, you can tag certain things and build dashboards to, to correlate information, to, to show over a period of time perhaps the same things are happening and how do we, how do we embed learnings within our business to stop that happening. Um, so it's a very tooling based as well to, to try and uh, visualize what, what, what's happened. And and you think that so so Skyscan is a great example because you've got a very engaged audience who who are motivated and interested in that particular set of problems. Do you think that played a part, or was there a wider cultural piece? So, for example, I'm thinking in an organisation that may, maybe may not have as many technical people involved in that process. What would your recommendation be in terms of trying to communicate that to 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 those parties? I think that that's that that certainly was difficult. Skyscan was a very technical crowd. Uh, as a business, actually, so um, you know, you, the, the crowd that were involved in those weekly meetings tended to be technical, um, even if they weren't developers or, or engineers. So um, it, it was technically focused. Uh, it would go down to lines of code where necessary in terms of how that that problem would come about. Um, how would you articulate that to a non-technical crowd? I mean, the, yeah, a little bit more difficult to do. Uh, it depends what you're trying to teach. At the end of the day, if uh, if fixes are being carried out by technical teams, then that that tends to be where some of the learnings uh, need to be. Um, if it's more wider business problems, you also need to change your your, your language around around that. Uh, so so to build on that, kind of stepping it up to the the organizational level, certainly in the financial sector, there are a couple. There were three things that we really had to to really quantify. One was of course the business impact. What's the impact to our customers? What's been the impact? Uh, to the bottom line, how does this impact our overall strategy? There's there's lots of other things. Like our, the technology risk program, not just about the information or the cyber piece, uh, came into play. Of course, if we had a significant event, purse strings get open, and people are like, yes, yeah, spend money, do what you got to do. But you need to make sure you have people that are tracking every penny you spend and justifying every penny you spend, because that's going to be reviewed with a fine-tooth comb afterwards. And while people are like, yeah, do what you got to do, uh, they're saying that at first until they see what can be potentially a seven-figure bill, and uh, that enthusiasm, that energy gets channeled into uh, another view. So definitely you want to track your, your finances and your spend. In fact, have somebody dedicated in your incident response programs to actually tracking your finance. Uh, at a high level, they, well, I'll, 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 I'll continue with that before I wrap up. Uh, the last piece, of course, is the regulators. They, uh, if you have significant events, they want to make sure that you have a defined process, that you're following your process, you're validating your process, but also that you understand the impacts of the business uh, and all, all the stuff we've talked about. And you need to demonstrate that any actions learned as part of your after action review uh, are being implemented and you need to show some type of metrics and reporting to again, validate that those lessons are being learned. So. It's kind of tying back to the reporting piece. That is so, so very important because ultimately regulators, as I mentioned before, are looking to make sure that you understand your risks and are managing accordingly. And the way you do that, of course, is through metrics and documentation. So it's interesting here. So we've spoken about crafting that internal message, uh, about lessons learned, what happens, uh, and speaking about the regulators as well. Chris, you mentioned TalkTalk and uh, Tesco earlier on and uh, the different PR responses to those. What's, uh, it would be great to hear from both of you your, your observations on how to and how not to react to an incident from a PR perspective, because clearly incredibly important in, in today's age. Stu? You, yeah, uh, sure. I mean, I, again, I think it's something that organizations are on a, a steep learning curve about. And, um, you know, th there have been those examples where uh, you know, 
publicly companies have not done it well. And, and talk, talk, talk. I, I, see, I think Dido Harding's actually on um, the panel for InfoSec this year, so you know, clearly has been on a journey of learning. And um, I suppose you need the right people around you to, to help with that as well. Um, but it's not just the major PR response um, that, that would go out after major breaches. I mean, even in the last few weeks, there's been there's a bit of a backlash on Twitter where uh, companies, social media uh, employees are trying to respond to queries, or, and perhaps not they're perhaps not technical people or security nurse, certainly not security people, and they formulated responses which then get jumped on by the security community. And I think we've got we've got a part to play here as security people around how we respond to that, and how fair we are with, with some of those things. Um, I think businesses should be assisting their social media um, people to to try and help formulate the, the right kind of replies. Um, so it's not just that kind of major uh, response, which which is which is necessary for certain companies. Uh, Talk Talk was an unfortunate one. I think they made numerous mistakes. It wasn't just the initial um, breach and the way they handled it. It was the putting people in front of uh, historic equipment that didn't look good. Um, you know, various kind of things we can all have a bit of a giggle about. Uh, but again, this this goes back to the chat we had before that Chris mentioned the the whole. Uh, you know, having a, a reasonably defined response as to what you do should should something terrible happen, and getting the right people in front of the cameras if, if that's what uh, what's needed. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think another piece that we haven't talked about is we need to educate our our key stakeholders internally that investigations take time. It's not like Star Trek where you can say, "Computer, give me X, Y, and Z," and it does. The, these things can take a lot of time and energy, and especially if you don't have robust asset inventories or a lot of detective uh, uh, tools internally. And even if you do, you know, sometimes running that quote Python script can, uh, you know, take a lot, lot of time to get that results. So we also need to make sure that we've educated our executives internally for our own peace of mind, as well as, you know, so that when they're going in front of the camera, they can say, you know, our teams are doing the investigation. You know, they, these things take time. We're being very thorough, mm -hmm. which is basically what Tesco did. You know, they didn't commit any real data mm -hmm. until they had that data. That data had been absolutely verified, which is if you look back at some of the talk talk stuff, you know, she's speculating in terms of who the threat actors were, the, the uh, you know, and the, the impact of the breach. If we go back to the U.S. to target that the retailer, that's another example of what not to say in front of the media. What was a few hundred thousand ultimately grew to 70 million credit cards. Uh, and they included mine because I used to shop at Target a lot when I was in the U.S. Um, yeah, in fact, as a side note, I had five credit cards replaced in 12 calendar months through external breaches. Wow. Um, <laughs> really annoying when you buy something on your credit card and then you show up later to go retrieve it, like a, a train or plane ticket. Um, and, well, train tickets. But anyway, <laughs> that's that's. And, my and, and Chris, how do we? How do you think we address that kind of challenge? Because you know, CISOs are getting a lot of heat at the moment for, and, and quite rightly perhaps at certain organizations, but it's very much a witch hunt, I feel, at the moment for, for certain orgs. And there probably is a, an element of wanting and needing to respond quickly, but at, you know, at times you won't have that information to hand, even as a CISO. Um, as you say, it can take weeks or months to really get to the detail of what might have, have happened. And by that point, it could have escalated to a, a much bigger figure in terms of data loss or financial impact. Um, I'm not, I'm not sure what the answer is around that. I think we're still it's still very new on, on how we we respond to major breaches. And we, we obviously hope that our organizations don't get hit to that extent, but um, it's becoming more real for for all of us around how we have to, to deal with those things. Well, well, that's where your organizational tabletops come into play. So it's not just the one about the operations team. You have somebody from the operations team at these ones, but these are really to test the organizational rep response. You know, you have a scenario where like BBC is calling you to say, hey, by the way, we found your customer data breach on some third party or your customer database on some third party website. And you start this scenario with that. And the, the ops person is in a room just ultimately to say, you can get this amount of information at this amount of time. And you said as part of the ground rules that you know the management can't really go after them for that. You save that for later on, where you have that part of that education. But really, the focus is on the organizational response, and it's again, this is really to help with the media response, but also to help educate the business about just the overall processes, what's going on in the background, and what role they take. Because as as we all know, as information security professionals, this is a business problem. It's not a technology problem, and it's not a security issue. This is a business risk. And by having the, the, quote, executive level, unquote, uh, tabletops, that really helps 
drive that message home because ultimately they're the folks that need to make the decision. That's why, like with the incident command stuff that I talked about earlier, our general counsel was our, our incident commander. If we had a significant reportable event, our head lawyer was in charge because they, at that point, those are the, those they understand the business risks. Mm-hmm. We, we of course had key people from the different lines of business to provide their input, but um, and then that's the I think the tabletop is one of the most effective tools to get that message across and get that yeah. education going on. Yeah, agreed. I mean, one thing I had at Skyscanner was um, I had media training, which was the first time in my career I'd I'd ever had to do that. Um, and this was you know I wasn't an exec, I wasn't on the board. Um, CEOs might naturally be more used to appearing in front of the media and, and have that kind of training. And, and it was one of the most difficult things I've done in my career, actually, was to, to be sat down uh, with somebody from PR who was asking, uh, pretending to be in a, in a scenario of being grilled by, by a major organization uh, and asking some very difficult questions. And I think for those of us that aren't perhaps board level and, and don't have that training, but then to potentially be thrust into the limelight, uh, as quite a few, few are, are being at the moment, it's, it's very difficult. And who do you put in front of the press in, in that scenario? Do you put your CEO, which is what Talk Talk did, um, and, and she didn't quite have the background or the, or the certain types of knowledge to answer certain questions, or do you potentially put your head of or infosec manager in there because they're more knowledgeable, but they're not used to dealing with the media environment, where it, it could also turn into uh, as bad a, a reaction? Yeah, that's always a tough question that you have to deal with internally. Um, I've always advised they don't put me in front of the camera just because of the glare. Um, <laughs> sorry, all jokes. I, I, I know you get it. I feel your pain, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, that's, that's, this is, again, these are the elements that need to be part of your incident response plan that you have as an organization. So you have those decisions made ahead of time, and you, you determine who can be there. And you also, uh, the other unspoken part of all of these, you need two or three backups. Because inevitably, the person you need is on holiday. Um, or as what's happened to me, any time I would go on holiday, this has happened uh, with, uh, remember the, uh, what's it called, Heartbleed. Yeah. That whole Heartbleed happened as I was on vacation on my way to actual here in Scotland. Um, and uh, that, there was a whole lot of unnecessary drama, of course, with that. But that's, you know, we activated our program, and then I went dark for the flight. And happily, our processes uh, had been matured enough through other events and a lot of other pain that that actually ran fairly well, but it's, yeah, you got to have, you got to keep, you got to take the thoughts that this isn't just an operational thing, but this is a whole business crisis management response Mm. and leverage what existing business crisis management plans you guys have in your organization, or if you don't have one, then sit down with the right people and start building one out. And then you have your quote cyber piece, as well as you would like a building fire or what natural disasters or whatever. And this is just part of the overall business thing. And this is just one piece of pie in that overall uh, whatever I'm mixing up metaphors so I'll stop <laughs> yeah and indeed, and indeed uh, using the learnings uh, or you know from the failures of other organizations I mean there's there's nothing that gets your organization talking about security more than the latest breach that that tends to be how things how things go so as much as we can have a, a bit of a giggle about talk talk and various others is they've helped us improve our uh, our processes so that tends yeah. to be a, a good Absolutely. thing. Absolutely, they're making us stronger. Yeah, and, and I think it's great that that uh, the chief exec is at Infosec this year, it's brilliant, and uh, learn from mistakes and failures of others, and um, I think it's awesome that she's stepping up to do that, so good for her. Well, that was always my backup career plan, <laughs> what, was if I was in the bank and we got completely owned, and it was embarrassingly so, <laughs> then I'd uh, you know, live on going on the talk circuit yeah. saying, here were my mistakes, yeah, yeah. pay me money to learn where I went wrong, because <laughs> yeah. I think that's equally valuable. Agreed. Well, on that, I'm going to draw things to a close. Um, I think we've got a couple of questions for those who um, have got their go-to webinar box in front of them. We do accept questions through that. Uh, so please feel free to ask questions. Uh, Teresa, um, would you like to um, read out some of the, the things we've received? Yes. On the subject of GDPR, what do you think has been or will be the biggest hurdle for the financial sector since GDPR was announced two years back? Who would like to, to tackle that particular authority question first? Well, Stu's experience is more recent. Yeah, yeah sorry, I, I missed a couple of words of that. What was the... Can you repeat the question? Yeah, sorry. On the subject of GDPR, what do you think has been or will be the biggest hurdle for the financial sector since GDPR was announced two years back? 
the biggest hurdle. So I, I think we've alluded to this during the, the chat today, but I think understanding where all of your data is at any point in time and where you're moving it to, and I don't just mean internally as a business, but your third-party suppliers uh, as well, and, and I think that's a, that's a real challenge. I, I'd be surprised if any organization on the planet has fixed that particular problem yet. Um, I'm keen to see the initial kickback from GDPR. I can't imagine that the ICO in the UK are going to be uh, wielding the axe particularly quickly. I think this is going to take time to embed, and I think they understand that this has been a big shift for a lot of organizations beyond uh, more basic um, data protection. So uh, for businesses to understand their posture and their, their where their data is, uh, it, it's, it's very difficult. Uh, so, so that said, they have also made it very clear that you know it's been two years. So um, I don't. I think though they might actually come out, and this is just a personal opinion, of course, and it may be fine an easy example to make of somebody. But uh, to to answer the question, and Stu alluded to it, but I think it's actually it's also in the third party suppliers. But it's really there's there's some language in there about your third party suppliers needing your permission to for them to also use third party suppliers and so forth. So like the quote fourth and fifth uh, party suppliers, that's gonna be a, a big change to uh, organization supplier and sourcing governments as it is uh, assessing your third parties for risk in and of itself is an incredibly painful and expensive stuff. Mm. Uh, it took anywhere between, depending on the year, 10 to 15% of my overall budget when I was at the bank to do our third party risk for, from an information security perspective. So now to add that extra complexity, making sure that our third parties aren't using third parties themselves or that they're doing their due diligence and we've we've dotted all the I's and crossed the T's and so forth, that's that that's an element that I think is, is subtle and would be a, a, a big, it's a trap. Uh, kind of element to uh, to the whole GDPR program. Do we have any other questions? Yeah. Great. Does any of you use balanced scorecards in your security rules? Balanced scorecards? Yeah. Uh, yeah, like uh, for uh, 360 feedback, balanced scorecard review of, um, say, appraisals is where, where I last saw that. Uh, Chris, you're about to see something. Oh, as the, as the individuals? Yeah. Yeah, we did a lot of 360s yeah. uh, at the bank. They were part of the overall culture for senior managers and right. up. And, and with yep. the relation to InfoSec, was, was there an element of that? Uh, not, not in terms of being reviewed for key expertise mm -hmm. per se, although I've, that's definitely, you know, your domain knowledge and your role is a subset of that, yeah. of, of your generic 360. But we we had a big focus in our team, and certainly in our banking, is that we were there. Our, our focus was improving the business, not just managing the risks, but actually improving the bottom line. So we we, we had a different bit of a spin on that. Stu, I, sorry, I cut you off. No, no, I, yeah, we've used 360 feedback, um, not just within cyber functions, but because our, our roles generally do, uh, we work with various other parts of the business, You'd, we'd often get 360 feedback from HR or finance or legal teams with various teams that we'd worked with uh, was always a good benchmark of uh, our impact there. Okay, um, so I think I, have we got, okay, we've got time for one, one more question. On the subject of informa information asset management, I have, through lack of other options, gone down the road of using the existing IT monitoring systems with tags on file shares, databases, etc., for categorization and so on. It kind of works, but I'd rather have a separate system. The usual IT asset management options, e.g. Snipe IT, don't seem to be a very good fit. Any recommendations for information asset management systems? I honestly don't remember which ones we were using, and they were expensive. <laughs> <laughs> that much I remember. <laughs> and I, I, I do, I guess. I, I don't really want to give anything away of the organizations that I've worked with. I would happily engage on Twitter privately if somebody wanted to know yeah. things that I think are good in the industry. I'm not sure this is the forum to um, to punt to the product to, to a certain extent. Um, I, uh, could, could we get the, the contact details? We'll put you in touch and we'll, we'll take that offline. Um, so, so basically not a spreadsheet. Okay, that's, that's good. To hear. <laughs> well, we all love spreadsheets, don't we? <laughs>
Yeah. Well, uh, on that, uh, I'm going to have to cl uh, draw this to a close. Um, fantastic session today, uh, gentlemen. Thank you very much for your time. Really good insights, taking us from high-level issues affecting financial services through to some of the nitty-gritty around detecting, responding, and putting together your incident response plan. So, Stu, Chris, thank you very much. Thank you, Jamie. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. Thanks. Bye-bye. Cheers. Bye.